conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. I am Portia Dossi, a public history graduate student, and I will be your host for this episode of Knight's History Cast. The Department of History's Kayla Campagna sat down with Dr. John Morrow, Franklin Professor of History at the University of Georgia and author of several books, including Only America Left Her Negro Troops Behind, The African-American Military in the First World War. In the interview, Dr. Morrow talks with Kayla about the contributions of African-American soldiers to World War I, and he discusses how many Americans overlooked Black soldiers' efforts, and even feared that their achievements would disrupt segregated American society. Let's listen to their conversation. Hello, my name is Kayla Campana. I am with the UCF History Department, and I am here today with Dr. John Morrow, Franklin Professor of History at the University of Georgia. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so Dr. Morrow was our poly speaker last night. He gave a lecture, Only America Left Her Negro Troops Behind, the African-American Military in the First World War. Today I'd like to ask you some questions based off your lecture. Right. Um, the first question is, many Americans are unfamiliar with the role of African-Americans during the First World War. Could you describe some of the roles African-Americans had during the war? Uh, surely, and that's a very good question. Uh, often African-Americans are omitted from history where they belong. One of the things that we know is that African-American men have served in every war that the American colonies and the United States have fought. And World War I was no different. Uh, Most of the nearly 400,000 African-American men who either volunteered or were conscripted in the draft served as stevedores and laborers building railroads in France and uh, docks, wharves, unloading ships, and then working behind the lines on construction and working in logistics to ensure that supplies got to the front. Uh, Women also participated. um, Black women's civic groups were organized to support the African-American men who went abroad, and that was very much uh, the way white women's groups were also organized to uh, sew and knit things for the soldiers abroad to support them. There were some very powerful women's groups in both New York and Chicago where black regiments came from who uh, supported their men uh, during the war. So it's a very, actually, uh, what I'd call uh, active period for African Americans because the NAACP comes to into its own um, advocating for black soldiers to go abroad. And the idea behind all of it is that uh, through participation in service to the country in wartime, that African Americans should gain equal rights uh, with their white peers, uh, which did not happen. But at the same time, they gained a good sense of themselves as able to be very, very effective as soldiers in the service uh, of the country, and as well to be able to organize uh, a number of people appeared in the First World War, like A. Philip Randolph, 
who was running the union of uh, railway porters, um, who will be prominent in the civil rights movement for the rest of the century. And so this is the beginning of the what they now call the long civil rights movement. So it's it's very the war is very transformative for African Americans because they do participate so mm-hmm. strongly. So how were African American soldiers treated? African American soldiers experience varying kinds of treatment for the it's called the 93rd Provisional Division. There are, uh, there are four regiments that are going to serve in the French Army. They'll be under the administrative auspices of the U.S. American Expeditionary Forces, but the French Army, uh, because the French asked for them because they needed additional men, uh, take them and make them combat soldiers, uh, literally put them in the line alongside French and Moroccan troops uh, in regimental strength, which means about 3,000 men. Um, all these units uh, would have white officers, although a couple of them actually have uh, both white and black commissioned officers. Uh, but if you fought in the French army, the experience of the, and you, you'll see there are about 12,000 men total. You've got four regiments, about 3,000 each. Their experience is actually quite good because the French, they've been used to working with colonial soldiers, were actually pleased to have the African Americans because so many of their colonial soldiers had come from areas of Africa where they had no education, they hadn't been exposed to uh, white civilization and society. And as one of the generals who actually was in command of uh, one of the divisions that one of the regiments went to said, He's to his men, please remember, these are not men from uh, Af- the African bush. They come from New York City, one of the most civilized cities in the world, which is nice when a Frenchman says that about New York because they all believe Paris was the Mecca. But um, so the, the French army treated them very well. Their French army counterparts you know, often became friendly with the men, even though they couldn't a lot of them couldn't speak the language, but they could make themselves understood. The French people were very receptive to them. And so in many respects, they had um, quite a good experience. Uh, if you were in the 92nd Division, which stayed in the American Expeditionary Forces, your experience was quite negative because uh, what they invariably did was put you under Southern white officers and the threats were constant that if there were any problems, uh, the division of 28,000 men would be blamed for them. And uh, when they got over there, they were not trained and thrown into combat. Um, They performed adequately, a couple of units did not, but the white senior officers in the regiment basically blame the failures, any failures that occurred on their black soldiers as though they had nothing to do with them. Um, Interestingly enough, at the lower ranks, some of the white captains that served with their black counterparts and their soldiers developed a different opinion, but they don't register in the greatest scheme of things. When the generals and colonels say things, and a lot of what they say were lies, then that's what people pick up on. So a lot of the men who fought in the 92nd, and my great uncle was one of them, uh, felt demeaned um, 
and were very angry when they came home from the war because they risked their lives. And some of them had been highly decorated, uh, but then the whole division was, in a sense, trashed uh, by its senior officers. So uh, for those who did fight, uh, two different experiences. French Army welcomed the U.S. Expeditionary Forces. Mm -mm. Um, we're going to make an example of you so that we don't have to have any black soldiers in peacetime after the war. So to go off that a little bit, in your talk last night, you discussed how Americans either ignored or minimized the role of African Americans um, that they played in the war and their service, um, which might be used politically and um, for civil rights. Mm -hmm. um, how, in what ways did they manage to diminish these accomplishments? Well, the way, the ultimate way that they did, and this is especially crucial the ongoing history of the U.S. Army in the interwar period and the U.S. Armed Forces through World War II was that with these senior white Southern officers, uh, they basically wrote to their political representatives in Congress saying, uh, whatever happens in the peacetime Army, colored soldiers, as they called them, uh, were simply ineffective soldiers of the front. And there was plenty of evidence to counteract that, but there was a 1925 War College memorandum that brings up every old racist saw that you can think of. You know, blacks have smaller brains, uh, they don't have the ability to lead, they're cowardly at night. Uh, the irony of World War I is that the actual evidence proves that, that those were all lies, but these are canards that they spread, and so when you get to World War II, and uh, we know of most people have heard of the Tuskegee Airmen. So, but the notion was that African-Americans couldn't fly. They didn't have the initiative to be fighter pilots. Of course, all of that was disproved. But it came from this, in essence, set of lies that these men had begun to campaign to get a peacetime army that would be white. And they carried through to the 1925 War College Memorandum, which then was perpetuated through the interwar period in World War II. So the, the War College uh, perpetuates this notion that African Americans cannot be combat soldiers in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And that colors the approach to the U.S. Army through World War II. And if race trumps rank and black soldiers simply can't fight in combat, and yet the First World War disproves that completely. And for the, the larger citizenry, um, a, a number of them didn't realize um, that there were black soldiers in combat uh, because um, other than a couple of famous soldiers in the, what was called the 369th Regiment, Henry Johnson and Needham Roberts, who were featured as heroes after they um, had done valorous deeds in combat, um, when Stars and Stripes wrote about them, and then white and black papers picked up the news in the States, uh, what was invariably happening was that they would be placarded on top of this incredible feat of combat. There will be these sort of racialized com comments that, in a sense, detracted from the, the feat. You know, if a, if a white soldier had killed uh, four enemy, uh, five enemy in hand-to-hand -hand combat, then we would have heard great praise, as they did. Uh, when a black soldier does it, it, it comes along with all these com comments that, well, you know, 
black men are used to using razors, straight razors, so, you know, obviously fighting with a knife is no big deal. Um, so in, in that way, you, you so denigrate the achievement uh, of black soldiers. And uh, overall, what we know in history is that um, that's one of the aspects of the histories uh, that have been written about this country. For many years, black achievement was simply left out of it. And so the, the effort is to kind of first understand why and how it happens, and then to try to make certain that people go forward in terms of what you write and uh, tracing the evidence to kind of set the story right. Mm -hmm. So Thursday, um, April 6th, will mark the centennial of the United States entry into the First World War. How is the United States commemorating and remembering the war? Thursday, April 6th at Kansas City, in Kansas City, Missouri, which is where the uh, World War I monument and the World War I Museum are located there. Um, there's going to be a very big day. They're going to have speeches. Um, I'm supposed to participate in, in some, one of two symposia. The first one is going to deal with why America entered war, and the second one will deal with the effects of it, the long-term effects of it. Um, but uh, it should be quite fascinating. I think most people don't even know that there is a World War I museum and monument in Kansas City, um, but that's where they put it, um, the end of the war, and it was designed by a French architect who had done much of the memorial, many of the memorials in France, and it looks built in 26, it really looks like a World War I memorial. It was tall, spire, just looming over the downtown of Kansas City, and it's up on this hill. And in it, they have quite a few artifacts. It is the, probably the, the best kept secret in America, because all the other museums, as we know, tend to be on the mall in Washington or somewhere accessible. This one is not. And, uh, I do hope that people will start coming. I hope they publicize the centennial uh, so that people will understand better why we did fight that war and how important it was because most people don't realize that. Mm -hmm. So how should Americans remember the war? I'm a fan of the belief that World War II was a necessary war and those are the ones that you fight. We had a very difficult time deciding to enter the First World War because as a country of immigrants at the time, some of whom had really not been absorbed, uh, we had groups of people from all the fighting countries. And if you talk to them in groups, uh, no Irishman wanted to go fight on behalf of England and you've got German immigrants in the center part of the country who think, why should, <laughs> I'm not going to go fight the Germans. Um, ultimately, when we get into the war, um, everyone, uh, it's not a popular war. A lot of men don't show up for the draft. Uh, but those who do fight well and fight as Americans. And my belief is that it's the other necessary war of the time. I don't think people realize just how important it was. Um, the, uh, the 
American soldiers fought in Italy. In fact, the mayor of New York City, Fiorello, later mayor of New York City, Fiorello LaGuardia, was in Italy with a flying unit, um, and so many of these folks went back to fight for various countries. And it did help to unite a number of those immigrants because, as Americans, because people then realized, all right, they fought for the country. Um, there was a sort of notion of a melting pot. It did not include African Americans, uh, and that was basically the problem with both world wars. Uh, but my belief was we needed to enter it because we had been making a huge profit off of it uh, by selling um, goods, supplies, and ammunition to the British and French. And uh, Woodrow Wilson essentially entered it, not to make the world safe for democracy, as he said, but because by 1917, the calculation politically was that uh, everyone was getting exhausted. And what he believed was that he could have an American army. The war would last till 1919, 1920. We'd raise a large army of millions of fit young Americans, go over and actually win the war for the Entente, in other words, the British, French, and Italian governments. And then our economic and military power would enable him to dictate the peace with his 14 points and then create a League of Nations that um, would bring peace to the world. As we all know, that's not the way things worked out. The Germans quit in 1918 before they were invaded. And um, from there, uh, the course of history dictated otherwise. But that was the aim. That was the intention. And uh, I have no question that we should have participated in the war. Certainly, women, uh, women's participation in the war uh, helped them gain the vote. It followed on the Progressive Era um, and attempts of, of women's suffragists to gain the vote in America. And what they then did was the wartime service buttressed that claim, so they were able to gain the vote afterwards for African Americans who hoped to benefit from the war. That was not the case, but it did start the long civil rights movement that ultimately culminated in the post-World War II era. So um, I have no doubt that we, we should have fought. And uh, since I had ancestors who fought in it, uh, talked with relatives, uh, they didn't have any doubt that we should fight the war either, although they dissented from it. Well, thank you, Dr. Morrow, for being here. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Mm -hmm. it's, well, it's been a marvelous visit to UCF. I hope I get an opportunity to come back. Thank you. That was Dr. John Morrow, Franklin Professor of History at the University of Georgia and author of Only America Left Her Negro Troops Behind, the African-American military in the First World War. For Knight's History Cast, I'm Portia Dossi. Please subscribe to this podcast to hear future interviews and conversations. 